Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to Talking Law, a podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we're doing something a little bit different. In this episode, I'll be sharing with you an excerpt from an interview that I had with Ben Futrell on his show, The Business Brain Food Podcast. Ben and I talk about why it's important for businesses to get themselves sorted from a legal perspective. Then we delve deeper into four general areas of legal risk that business owners should be thinking about covering off first. I call these areas legal landmines, which can blow up in your face at any time if you don't get them sorted right away. So don't go anywhere. Here we go. listening to Talking Law, the podcast where business owners just like you discover how to avoid legal landmines and build value using smart legal tips. Join your host, Joanna Oki, as she cuts through the legal jargon and gives you clear and simple actionable legal strategies, which will get you optimal business results. I think so many business owners build their business by accident, you know, which is not the best way, but it happens. So do you find that people that don't have that preparation, haven't thought it through, are they getting themselves into more strife than those that are a bit more planned out from a, a legal perspective? Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I, I think there's a there's a size of business, a size that businesses get to where they suddenly realise that they need to get themselves sorted from a legal perspective. Now, some businesses, and these are the, the exception rather than the rule, some businesses will start out by understanding that they need to go and lay the foundations properly and get all of their ducks in line and get themselves sorted out properly. And usually those those businesses are actually comprised in part of um, some of the uh, equity partners or, or business partners that are involved having been in business before. But for the vast majority of other businesses that start up, they'll either have something in place that is big borrowed or stolen (laughs) from (laughs) someone else in terms of their terms and conditions and their employment agreements and all of those sorts of things. Or they'll have, in the worst case scenario, they'll have nothing at all. But they'll get to a particular size when either, number one, they suddenly understand the risk that's involved or number two, they're hit with an issue that causes them a lot of pain and a lot of cost time and money in dealing with the issue. So they'll hit that critical point where they understand either because something's gone wrong or because they've gotten overwhelmed or or they've gotten more educated, where they realise that they need to get their legal foundations in place. But the biggest risk, I think, is businesses who are on a really strong growth path who haven't understood the point of or the need for getting their legal foundations in place before they start that strong growth path because that's when a business is most exposed. Most exposed often because it has lower cash flow. So if something goes wrong, they're less flexible and able to deal with issues that are confronting them. And quite often they also are carrying a large overhead at that point. So, Mm. you know, I, I think before hitting a strong period of growth, for advisors to business, it's critical for them to to make sure businesses have thought about getting their legal foundations protected before 
before they hit that, you know, that strong period of growth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so important. Maybe, I mean, legal foundations, uh, a lot of people wouldn't understand what that means. But maybe we could talk about some of the key things you've seen in, in your experience of commercial law where people have been caught out. What are some of the landmines from a legal perspective that a business owner could be caught out by that maybe they don't realise that it could be a problem? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There's quite a few of them, but maybe if we start with intellectual property and brand protection first, because it's one of the easiest to understand and it's also one of the easiest for an organisation to protect. So, from a brand protection perspective, when organisations have a brand that isn't protected by a registered trademark, effectively they are exposed. Exposed either, number one, to other organisations attacking them on the basis that they're using a name that's too similar to their own registered mark, or number two, exposed because they are less able to stop competitors from using a similar mark as theirs. And in this sense, The answer is so simple. I mean, trademark registration is actually an extremely cheap process and it's the sort of thing that once you get a registration, a a registration in Australia lasts for 10 years and once you get it, all you do is at the end of the 10 years is pay a small fee, which at the moment is $300 per mark, and you get another 10 years protection. So as far as business insurance is concerned, I feel it's one of the cheapest Mm. that you can have. You know, and we have a lot of sad tales for, we do a lot of work in this intellectual property space. So we have a lot of clients referred into us when they're already in trouble. So we see a lot of these issues of businesses that have been around, you know, one that um, we just managed to close off last week had been around for 14 years. So they've been using their name for 14 years. And after using their name for 14 years, another firm that they were aware about at the time had been using a similar name. And neither of them were sure who'd really started first, but someone bought the other business and got really aggressive on the intellectual property and brand name. They ran off to the trademarks office, got a trademark registration, and then started pursuing our client. So our client, after 14 years of using the name, effectively had to come up to this decision as to whether or not they spent a lot of money from a legal perspective fighting to keep their name or whether they just abandoned this name that they'd built all of this brand Mm. goodwill under for 14 years and rebrand. So, you know, but this sort of thing... Had they have come to us earlier, you know, they they could have kept their brand and it would have cost them maybe a grand, maybe one and a half grand, and you know, and and then that's it, protection for forevermore with their brand name. Yeah, so- it was, sounds to me like the first person with the trademark is the one who's going to win. Yeah, exactly. That that's exactly mm. right. I mean, you know, there's, there's always there's always other elements to consider, but generally speaking, trademarks are in a first in best dressed. Sort and of so situation. what you're and so what you're saying, Joanna, is if you have a trading name like a business name, yep. that's not enough to protect it. So if you've got like a proprietary limited company, yeah. and you're you, and you're trading as that name, that's not enough to protect you. You also need to trademark that name. You're absolutely right, mm. and and wow. that is that that's the chief misunderstanding that many people have with businesses. You know, many accountants I speak to who set up businesses still don't understand this element that the business name registration is just an identifier with ASIC. And whilst you can use it to assist you, the real protection comes from trademark registration. Yeah. Now, you mentioned intellectual property. How does that differ from trademarking? 
Yeah, so trademarks is one type of intellectual property. So intellectual property refers to property of the mind. So intellectual property is different to real property where you have a table and you say, well, someone's stolen my table and I know that because my table isn't here anymore and they've got my table. Intellectual property is different because in the sense of intellectual property, the table, as it were, might still be there, but someone else may have may have breached your intellectual property rights. So intellectual property can be tr- can be trademarks, as we talked about, and trademarks can either be words or logos, but they can also be smells and they can also be sounds. Like the the Dell chime is an example of a sound that is protected by trademark registration. And then we also have copyright. And copyright is a body of work that's longer than a a name, which is protected by trademarks. So if you, for example, have a blog page, Ben, then you've got copyright protection in relation to that page. And so Mm. there's a number of ways that you protect yourself against people copying something that you have copyright protection to. And there's a number of other trademark, uh, sorry, there's a number of other intellectual property protections, but they're really the two main ones. There's also obviously patterns which is protection for a novel process or method of doing something. But the main, they're essentially the main core types of intellectual property that you can protect. And, you know, one of the things that I find quite interesting is I'm very often approached by people that say, I've got this idea, how can I protect it? And the reality is with intellectual property, the only thing that you can protect is the expression of the idea, not the idea itself. So that's why we have um, copyright protection that covers all of the words on a page, but not the idea that someone comes up with. So if you come up with an idea, we need to think of other ways to try and protect that idea from other people dealing with it. And usually we'll do that contractually with, say, for example, a confidentiality agreement. So you look at something like uh, Uber, for example, right? Uber's a big company. They've probably paid a lot of lawyers to try and protect everything. Could I start something that was called Zuba? And I mean, it's probably too similar in the name, but could I start another? <laughs> could I start another company that was a ride-sharing company using the exact same methodology that they use? And even though they might have trademarked everything, can can they come after me if I was to do that? Because yeah. I might cop, copy their business model. So let's say it's not Zuba, because if if you use Zuba, that will probably be potentially a little bit close. <laughs> given we're also using their their um their business model, we we'll just call but, it Ben's Ben's ride-sharing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ben's ride-sharing. Okay, perfect. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, yeah, if you so so the concept of having a ride sharing business where you know people who don't have a taxi license can you know offer their car up and people can jump onto an app and pay for it that's an idea and that in itself, therefore, is not protectable. And so that's why the world of apps, when people are having apps Mm. developed, this is a really interesting thing as well because how do we stop? And and this is, you know, quite often a chief concern that people come to me with. I want to engage an app developer to build me an app, but how do I even go out and get quotes without, you know, protecting myself against them taking the ideas, you know, and this is sort of an interesting discussion about how can you do that. Mm. Yeah, because that's one of the things I think most listeners here, the business owners that are listening, if they have a unique way of doing something, I don't know I've, I've got friends who've got businesses who have a unique process of building something, maybe in manufacturing or uh, in the way they deliver their product or service. Uh, yet, that is that unique process something that can be protected? So, because it might be something that's made them more efficient, or be able to deliver to the market quicker, or uh, uh, more cost effectively, 
or a unique product, for example, that other people haven't been able to produce, can they protect that? Is that their intellectual property? Yeah, so so a process is something that can be protected by patent, but a business process is extraordinarily difficult to get a business patent for, yeah. to get a patent for. Mm. So and and patents aren't cheap. So in reality, most people that feel they have a novel way of doing of of having created you know their business model will find that it's very difficult for them to protect it through intellectual property protection means or registrations. So what they need to do is then think of what other approaches they would take to protect this business IP. And that would be a basically contractual means and keeping elements of it secret to the extent that they can. So we look at commercial ways and quite often that might be so with any employees or staff that we engage with, we'll build certain things into the contract to ensure that they can't talk about it. They can't engage in businesses that are in competition after they've ceased employment with us. And, you know, those sorts of things. So we'll build up these elements of contractual rights that will protect us. And then from a commercial perspective, we'll also look at the arrangement and we'll say, okay, well, are there elements that we can keep behind closed doors rather Rather than making everything, you know, all of our staff aware of each of the uh, elements of it or without making it public to all of our clients. So, but if you're not able to do any of that, if if none of all you're able to do all of that, but you feel that that's not sufficient, then really it's about being the predominant name in the market. So, it's about building your brand and obviously protecting your brand before you build it so that yeah. no one else can trade under something too similar. So if I've already built my brand, let's say I'm that business that has spent 14 years building up a good client base and a good reputation in the marketplace, and and I listen to this podcast and I go, you know what, geez, I need to trademark this name, yeah. and I head I head off to the trademarking office and I say, here's my business name, I want to trademark, and they go, sorry, uh, it's already taken. What do you do then? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, firstly, I'd recommend that you come via a lawyer that's quite expert in the in the area. <laughs> First. Of course. <laughs> do, you, do you know any? Do you know any? <laughs> um, so, so there's lots of there's lots of ways that we can deal with, and effectively, what you're talking about here is called a citation. So, if you apply for a mark, and the trademarks office deems that it's too similar to other marks that are around at the moment, firstly, before you even start down the trademark registration path, you need to know exactly what's on the register so you know in advance what the Trademarks Office might say in response to your application. Because if you know for sure that you're going to get knocked back, then that will impact your strategy for application because there's lots of ways that you can apply for a trademark. And the interesting thing is trademark registration on the face of it looks quite simple, but it is one of these areas, you know, I've been in trademarks for, I'm not even sure, 15 to 20 years, and I'm still learning things about trademarks as we go. And it's it's an extraordinarily complicated area in comparison to how simple it looks. So mm. there's, as you put in a trademark application, there's a lot of things that you need to think about. Do I apply for a word mark? Do I apply for a logo mark? Do I apply for the two together? Which class do I apply for? What wording do I use in my specification to make sure I'm protected enough? And of course, what structure should be, what should the owner of this be? Because in an organisation, sometimes it's not 
the structure, the, the entity that you think it should be, there may be a better way for a better ownership structure for the mark. So once you've worked through all of these areas and you've done a good search to know what's on the register at the, mo- at, at the moment, you'll effectively have a strategy in place that will allow you to get a trademark registration in some way, shape or form. And it might be a strong registration if no one else is around on the register first, or it might be a weaker application if you've got real issues from other people on the register. But if if someone has got a direct conflict in a trademark, so they're using the same name as you, they've got it registered before you in the same kinds of services that you provide or the same kinds of goods that you provide. Um, so say, for example, you're a widget maker and, um, and you know, a phone maker and um, someone else has got the same name for making phones, then you've got yourself a problem, a really serious problem, and you need to understand whether or not you're infringing at that point. And even if you were the first to use it, you've still got a potential issue for, for your business. Mm. It is a bit of a landmine, isn't it? I don't think people realise. Now, these trademarks, by the way, uh, it, that we're registering here in Australia, are they just applicable in Australia or do you, can you get worldwide yeah. protection? Yeah. Registration for trademarks is jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So that means here in Australia, trademark registration will only protect you in Australia. So if you um, are providing goods or services to other countries, then you need to think about registering in each of those countries that you provide goods or services to. And we we are a member to a an international protocol that can make it a little bit easier to lodge in many different countries at once. But the more countries you add... The the more complicated and it's mm. the process becomes. I can imagine. I can only imagine. So the first, <laughs> the first thing that I think everyone's going to get out of this is, you know, you need to contact somebody, and I can, I can, um, you know, second go and find somebody. And uh, so if you don't have a great uh, lawyer that's an expert in this, of course, Joanna can help you. Uh, is make sure you have someone help you. We've got trademarks ourselves, and there, it's a very complex process and a long drawn out process as well. Mm, so you need to get some is. help. Yep. Um, so what other sort of landmarks are people? So that's sort of IP and trademarks, and obviously yep. that's a big one for by the sounds of things for a lot of small business. What yeah. other things? or what other traps are business owners falling into? Yeah, um, so so I think obviously your core elements of risk relate to your core stakeholders. So clients, staff and business partners are, are sort of a trilogy of potential landmines that are sitting out there. So starting off with clients, organisations need to have a strong client engagement agreement with their clients because if they don't, you they'll find as they get bigger and bigger and they deal with um, larger and larger projects or more and more projects that there will come a point where there is a difference between what they think they have agreed to provide and what the customer believes um, has been agreed to have been provided. And so your terms and conditions help you protect against this as well as against things like, you know, broad liability in relation to the goods or services that you're providing. And so so the answer for businesses is to have a proper client services agreement or standard terms and conditions that they then use with their customers to ensure that they're setting up their relationship right from the start. So it's clear what they're providing, by what date. Um, It's clear what the payment will be and when payment will be expected and what will happen if payment isn't made on time. Because as I said before, one of the greatest issues uh, facing businesses is their growth period. You know, quite often they're most exposed Mm. during their growth period. And quite often, 
often this relates to when customers stop paying or start paying slower. And, you know, that can really cripple a business if you've got slow payers or late payers. So, your client terms and conditions should really clearly deal with the issue of any extra fees that you might apply for clear, for non-payment or late payment. And indeed, businesses need to make sure that they've got processes set in place so that they can ensure that they're not in the situation where slow payers or non-payers are building up over time. You know, they the really most, need to mm. be on top of this. I'm always interested to know, Joanna, because I know, I mean, terms and conditions is important. And, you know, I think when we're buying things, I don't know, for you, but there are times when you're checking out online, you just tick a box and say, I accept the terms and conditions, or you might tick it mm. on, a, on on something you sign. Is that is that enough for them to be able to enforce their terms and conditions, or do does a business have a responsibility to really educate their client to the terms and conditions? Tell tell me what mm. what stands up and what doesn't when it comes to law. Yeah, so um, so clicking accept terms and conditions is is effectively acceptance. So in law, to have a contract in place, you need offer and acceptance, and so that effectively mm, is okay. you know acceptance. So yes, so clicking a box does work in terms of ensuring that you have bound the other party. But a business can't contract out of some things, and and some of those things are set out in in what used to be called our Trade Practices Act, but is now called the Competition and Consumer Act, um, which is a bit more of a mouthful. But things like minimum standards that a customer can expect from goods or services that they purchase you can't from you can't be contracted out of. But one of the issues that often occurs and that we see a lot in disputes is that businesses might have this process of terms and conditions flying between them. So, think of an example where if you're a business that has accepted, for example, a an estimate from someone and they've provided their terms and conditions on the back and then you send your terms and conditions, your terms of service to them and they send you back an invoice with their terms and conditions and we call this the battle of the forms. <laughs> yeah, is, sounds like you know, <laughs> and, and you know, and and this is a you know, this creates a bit of a minefield for organisations. But I, I think the most important thing for businesses who are providing goods or services is to think about whether or not they're trying to just have a gotcha if something goes wrong. So you know, they can pull it out at the end of the day if the worst case happens and they can pull something out, or are they trying to prevent issues from occurring in the first place? Mm. Now, if you're taking it from the position, well. I'm trying to prevent issues from occurring in the first place, then you'll want to ensure that your customers understand what they're signing and you'll want to have something that goes along with that's more than just a click because a, a tick box with a link attached to it is something that we can almost always guarantee no one will read. You know, yeah. I barely yeah. even read them. So if you're after the ticker box thing, then you're saying, okay, what I'm doing is I'm creating these terms just in case I need them in the future so we can pull them along to our lawyers mm. so they can mm. battle it out. But if what you want is to avoid issues, then you need to think of a sensible way to communicate these terms in, in a way that is far more likely to be read than the ticker box and the link. Yeah, okay. Because, you know, I mean, I've heard stories of gyms in particular, you, you know, uh, um, these gyms where they have the 12-month minimum membership. People join the gym with all good intentions. I think I've done it. And you go for two months and then you don't go back, and then you're in gym, and you go, I want to cancel. And they go, oh, but you've signed a, a you've, you've ticked the box to say you understand the terms and conditions, it's a minimum 12 months. 
Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. and I think I think I, I think maybe the you know the ACCC or somebody got involved in that, didn't they? And yeah. it was become a quite a public thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So so this is new legislation. So what you're talking about here is new legislation that's only been out in the last couple of years. And for law, let me tell you, that's a new thing, you know, because mm, nothing yeah, 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 yeah. But the new legislation came out and effectively it said when you're in um, the situation, I'm talking about business to business here, when you're in a situation of a business, one business to another, where one business is a small business, then um, if you have a standard form contract and within that standard form contract, contract, you have an unfair term, then the small business can argue that that unfair term is void, even yeah. if they've ticked the box. Um, yeah. And this legislation has uh, been around for a bit longer in business to consumer land. So when you're talking about the gym, you're talking here about a business to a consumer. And once again, that legislation has been around for a little bit longer than the business to business legislation. And it says the same thing where there's a standard form contract. So, you know, an example of that is the pre-printed contracts, but it can actually be ones that may even have been slightly negotiated between the parties. But wherever there's a standard form contract and there's an unfair term within it, then um, the consumer for the consumer legislation or the small business for the small business legislation can argue that that term is void. And we certainly use that as a tactic for our small business clients to help get them out of really tricky contracts sometimes if we're able to argue that it's a standard form contract with a small business that has an unfair contract term. And for, for people who are listening to this who have their own business, you know, the other thing for them to be aware of is if they have standard form contracts with their customers, whether they're consumers or small businesses, they're going to be subject to the same risks that one of their clients comes to them and says, no, this term that you're asking for is unfair, therefore it should be void. And if it's void, that you don't get the opportunity to write the clause down into a way that is more palatable to both of you. It's just void. It's struck out. So if it's an important clause and it's there to protect your organisation against liability, then you need to now make sure that it's a reasonable clause, because if it's not, if you've borrowed these terms and conditions from someone else or you've gone and got them drafted from a lawyer who doesn't know, you know, doesn't quite understand the implications of what they're drafting, you know, you're, you might be in a situation where something happens that triggers some sort of liability to your organisation. You say to your customer, no, look at this clause, this protects me. And your customer says that clause is void because you've gone too far. You've yeah, tried too yeah. hard to protect yourself. You've gone too far. And now it's void and you have no protection. So this is less likely, though, if you are you are creating a new contract agreement with every client, that's less yeah. likely to happen. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, exactly. But if you and now if if you have a standard terms and conditions and it's just a tick of the box, can you make that a stronger case by making them sign to say they've understood the terms and conditions or initialing each page or something like that? None of those elements will change the legislation component. And the legislation mm, component mm. is that if it's an unfair term, then it will be void. Now, if you get someone to, to sign each page and it's only a short document and this is one clause of hardly, you know, say five or six clauses, then maybe there's an argument that it's not an unfair term because the other party 
could easily understand what they were signing and yeah. decided to agree to it anyway. So in that way, maybe having a signature on a page may, might slightly assist in the argument, but it's all all of this area is grey, you know. The, mm. um, the legislation doesn't give us absolutes. It just talks about this concept of unfair. So, you know, the more arguments you can raise as to why it's not unfair, and certainly that's having an easy-to-understand contract and making sure, you know, having a written a, a signature at the bottom does indicate that someone is more likely to have read it than just a, a yeah. text. So, so to me it sounds like if you want to protect yourself with clients, have terms and conditions but make sure there's nothing in there that could be seen as unfair if yes. uh, if if it's a standard thing that everybody gets, otherwise yes. uh, it could be turned over if it ended up going legal. And then there's, I mean, yes. you, you might be in a business where you've got huge contracts with big money, and it could cost you a lot of money if you're not careful in the way that you do this. Obviously, um, so clients was one area. You mentioned staff was another. How how what sort of landmines are there in, in the world of staffing? Yeah, I think the biggest one in staff is um, the risk of unfair dismissal action. As you employ people, you really need to make sure you have a strong employment agreement in place and the strong employment agreement needs to protect organisations against the areas of confidentiality that we were talking about before, also intellectual property. So you want to make sure that your staff members are assigning all of the intellectual property that they're creating to you clearly in the agreement and that they're not able to deal with that intellectual property after they've terminated the agreement with you. Um, I would recommend having restraints in that agreement as well to ensure that if they go and finish working with you, they don't end up taking the client base or all of the rest of the staff. So all of those things, you know, the sorts of things that should be thought about and do come up from time to time. But by far, the biggest issues we see are with this element of an argument of unfair dismissal. Because whenever you terminate an employee, you're entering into a really dangerous area. You just need to make sure you don't terminate an employee without getting some sort of legal advice. I think that's probably the easiest way to say it because the more information we provide in terms of the sorts of things that you're doing, the more businesses forget one key element. So if you're thinking about terminating a staff member, you really need to just make sure you've had a chat with someone who understands the area first to make sure you're doing it in the right way. Otherwise, you're exposing your organisation to mm. an unfair dismissal action. And, you know, it's very cheap for employees or ex-employees to file a claim with the Fair Work Ombudsman. So you need to make sure you know what you're doing before you're exposing yourself to any sort of issues in the area of termination. And mm. firstly, it's about making sure you have the right record keeping within an organisation. So, you know, if you've got a staff member who has performance issues, you need to make sure that you're documenting those issues and documenting those discussions. But before you take any sort of action to terminate them, you just need to make sure you understand the process that you need to go through. Yeah. And I believe it changes depending on how big your business is or how many employees you have, doesn't it? The the, yeah. the, rule, the rules are different for smaller businesses versus mid-size and bigger businesses. Yeah, well, particularly in relation to the period of time that an, you can engage an employee mm. before they have access to unfair dismissal claims. For small businesses, you have 12 months and for larger businesses, it's only six months. And so, and this comes back to how often, how we see this concept of a probationary period anyway. Mm. It's interesting because yeah, well, the, the probationary period is something I was going to ask you about because I think 
Um, you're allowed to have uh, up to six months, I think, now, probationary period. You can set whatever you want as your probationary period. But if you have a three-year probationary period in, in your contract, it's going to stop an ex-employee taking contractual action against you, but they still might take action for unfair dismissal in and of itself as, yeah. as an action that they're entitled to outside of the contract. Because yeah. we have these underlying common law rights, which is the unfair dismissal right, and then we have separate contractual rights. And those are two different things. Yeah. So, of course, that's one thing. And you mentioned uh, the restriction of trade. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that because what, from what I've heard, you can't uh, restrain an employee. If that's their only way of making money, you can't actually restrain them. So how does a, rest- a restraint order or a restraint clause, I guess, in an agreement with an employee work? Yeah, that's interesting. I think this is one of the um, – I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because this is this is certainly a myth that goes around that, you know, restraints with staff are, are just unenforceable, which, which is actually not at all correct, but it's very true to say there's a lot of risk sitting in trying to restrain a staff member post, you know, termination, but it's not – completely unenforceable, but there's you have to be very careful in what you're asking to ensure that it's reasonable in the circumstances. So what's an example of that? If you've got a senior staff member who has access to information in relation to your organisation that provides your organisation with a competitive advantage, then, you know, you can certainly add clauses that would restrain them from working with a competitor or using that information for with a competitor. Certainly, it's easier to prove just a blanket restraint as long as it's reasonable in the circumstances. So, as long as you're not going further, as long as it doesn't create a situation where they're not able to get employment outside of that restraint. So, let's say you work in a particular particular niche industry and you have a staff member who has access to information that relates to competitive advantage your organisation has in that niche industry. Well, you might say, well, look, they didn't work in that niche industry before they came to work from us. So therefore, a restraint wouldn't be unreasonable that prevents them from acting within that industry for a reasonable period of time after we terminate. So that's an example of the way that you can play with these restraints mm. so that they are enforceable. So you can play with the type of industry that they relate to. You can play with how long the restraint lasts for after the end of termination. And you can play with what the restraint actually relates to. So where a restraint relates to things like, you know, not taking clients, not dealing with clients, not taking staff, not dealing with staff, those sorts of things are generally highly enforceable for a period of time. You can't you can't have them being ongoing forever and, you know, five years will probably be too long a period of time. But, you know, if you come up with what looks like a reasonable period of time, then those two areas are certainly something that you could include in those clauses. And then in relation to competition, i.e. stopping them from working with a competitor of yours, once again, sometimes that might be seen as something that would be defensible as being reasonable, Mm. um, depending on how it's drafted, and sometimes it wouldn't. So this is why, as you can see, just borrowing an agreement that someone else has used and just whipping it in place for any old staff member of yours that has these sorts of clauses may be your undoing if those clauses aren't properly reflecting what is reasonable in your business situation. 
Yeah, okay. So, because I think, yeah, like I said, it's a bit of a myth there. You hear of a story saying it's unenforceable because you can't stop somebody mm. earning money from the only way they earn money. So, for example, if I was, let's say I'm an account manager for a, a company that uh, makes widgets and I've got, you know, I've built, I've been there for five years and I've got this amazing base of clients that love me and order their widgets from me all the time. And then a, a competitor comes to me and says, hey, I'll pay you 25% more if you come and work for me. Uh, and and plus commission, and I jump over there to that competitor, and I go and I start uh, talking to all those clients that I built that relationship mm. with, them, and I start taking all of those clients. And obviously, very damaging for the business that they've left, mm. and very very beneficial for the business they've gone to. Mm. Um, to to protect yourself against that, does because that to mm. me sounds like illegal activity anyway. So it's like stealing, but to me it sounds like you've got to have an agreement in place to stop that from happening. Yeah, look, we can. Uh, there, there's, it's very difficult to stop an organisation and another organisation external to yourself um, benefiting out of your client base and it's hard to stop an employee leaving you and taking a client base Mm. um, and and dealing with your clients and dealing with your staff if you don't have um, something that's set out contractually. So that's the first thing. The first thing is about having the right contracts in place for your organisation. And, uh, you know, that's one thing. Another thing is also the, the commercial reality, which is having the right relationships in place as well. So contract is one thing, but the relationship is also an element on top of that. Yeah, and when I yeah. say that, you, you, I'm of the belief that you never want a contract to sit there in and of itself. You want people to understand what the contract contains. So you want them to understand what's right from your perspective. You under, want them to understand what's wrong from your pr- perspective and you need them to understand why that's in place. So I, I'm all for ensuring that people who are signing these agreements, in, in this sense we're talking about employees, ensuring that they understand what they've signed as well and that's also another the reason why these agreements need to be clear and not too complex, so easy for them to understand. Mm. But if an employee has signed a contract like this where they have a strong restraint, a strong and appropriate restraint, and they still leave and they engage with another organisation, you know, that's the sort of instance when we would suggest to our client to go very hard on ensuring that the new employer completely understands that they're dealing with someone who is now in breach of a contract, understand that they might be in our target zone as well. So one of the things that we might argue against this new employer is that they are participating in inducing a breach of contract. So as long as you've got these contractual means in place, we have a lot to work from, from a legal yeah. perspective oh, in terms of stopping people. Yeah. Yeah, good to know. you need to have it in it, place first. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, mean, once again, I mean, that's why we're talking about these landmines because people don't have these things in place. Yes. And then, you know, when it happens, it's too yes, late. It's <laughs> so, too late. Yeah. And there's yeah. very little we can do. We can write threatening letters, but, yeah, of some, course. Mm. you know, there's very little that can be done at that point. Yeah, which is uh, it's incredible to think about really that because uh, um, the other thing that does happen, I've seen happen, is where employees will leave a business and start their own business and then take yes. clients. Same yes. thing, you can, you, can, you can restrain against that as well, obviously. Absolutely, you can. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Yep. And then the, the yep. third landmine, I'm just mindful because we are running out of time, but the third landmine you spoke about was partners. Now, just, just give us a bit of a brief understanding of how that can be a landmine if you've got business partners in your business. 
Yeah. Look, so firstly, I, I just want to be clear. I think, you, you know, there is nothing wrong with having business partners in business. You know, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, never never going to business with anyone else. I don't, I don't subscribe to that, but I do subscribe to the theory that the likelihood is that the majority of business partnerships, so when I say partnership, I mean it in the broader sense, not because there is a concept of a legal partnership. But when I say partnerships, I mean two, two three, four, five people who are all participating in a business together, you know, Mm. being shareholders in a company or whatever. Whatever the partnership looks like, in most business arrangements where they involve other people who are part of the equity, there will be a point where one or all of them will disband at some point. So that's the reality. And I think if you're clear about that and you start with the end in mind, then you're aware that you need to understand what the exit looks like, exit options look like for all of you. So I think the saddest, the saddest thing is often people who start in business being, you know, really close, always, you know, having alignment right in the beginning, but getting to this point where someone wants to leave and now they suddenly don't agree on how that will happen. And one person thinks that the proposed approach is unfair and then it just winds up and winds up and can lead to really ugly long-term and expensive battles. So the way you avoid that is by having the discussion right at the beginning. Well, what are we going to do if one person leaves, you know, and how are we going to deal with this? And then from a legal perspective, the way one of the important elements is making sure you have, if it's a company, a shareholders agreement, if it's a partnership, a partnership agreement that you have some agreement in place that steps out the way the business will be run together and how exit can happen in an orderly way if one or everyone wants to exit the business. And I think it's super important that businesses start with that element, no matter how hard it is at the beginning, I promise you it would be harder if you don't do it at the beginning and Mm. you leave it to the end when you're not agreeing. (laughs) I guarantee it. (laughs) And this is where you need to make sure that, you know, you're clear about, you you know, the other business owners not being able to run off with the staff, for example. So this is also where you have restraints. So so tell me, I mean, we know all of these things, like these landmines are not new things, right? And, and, And business owners listening to this right now are thinking, oh, well, yeah, I need to do that, I need to do that. And they know they need to do this. Why is it that so many, even after listening to this, probably won't go and do it? Is it is it cost? Is it time? Is it complexity? Why do you find so many people just avoid covering these bases off? Because it's overwhelming, I think. It's mm. overwhelming to think about these things. And people have this perception that it will cost them a lot of time and money to, to get it dealt with. Our legal practice has has a litigation and dispute resolution division. And as I said to you before, I, I don't deal with a lot of litigation myself because I, I prefer more proactive approaches to business than litigation. But I, um, for years and years, you, you know, I ran the practice in that way. And I, one day I realised, you know, when issues issues were occurring, people did need litigation help. And all I was doing was sending them off to people who didn't care as much as I did about them and their business or the answer, yeah. right? So in the end, I decided, okay, gosh, you know, we've got to put this litigation and dispute resolution arm on because, you know, then I can make sure we're at least caring for them in the right way um, in this process. But I think by far the best thing is if you tackle it from the beginning because I can promise you as much as I don't want our clients to end up in litigation, if they end up there, that will be far more expensive than if they had have 
warded off the issue right in the beginning. So I'm all about proactiveness. If you think it's time-consuming to deal with in advance, you've got no idea how time-consuming it will be if you don't deal with it and you leave it to blow up in Mm. the future. Because if you're dealing with a growing business, something will blow up at some stage. There is no question about it. There is no client I've dealt with that has not had a growing business that has not had something blow up if they have not put the right foundations in Mm. place from the beginning. So it's about trust with a legal firm as well. I think some organisations just don't know where to start. So they try to put together bits and pieces themselves without really knowing what they're doing. And I think it's about finding a legal firm that you're comfortable with and that you trust and allowing them to provide you with the outline of what your business Mm. needs in whatever phase it is at the moment. Well, that's it for today's episode of Talking Law. As a quick recap, we talked about the four top legal landmines that businesses are exposed to and how you can avoid them. And if you've forgotten, here they are very quickly. Number one, make sure you have a trademark protection for your brand. And before you even start down the trademark registration path, I highly recommend that you seek professional help from someone who's an expert in the area. Because although the trademark process looks simple from the outside, there's a lot that can go wrong if you're not familiar with the landmines that are sitting in this space. Number two, have strong client agreements in place to ensure that you are setting up the relationship correctly from the start. Number three, you really need to make sure you have a strong employment agreement in place to protect your business against the areas of confidentiality and intellectual property. We busted the myth relating to how restraints are unenforceable and discussed how they actually are enforceable as long as it's reasonable within the circumstances. I also talked about the biggest issue in this area being the risk of an unfair dismissal claim. So if you're thinking about terminating a staff member, run things through your lawyer first to make sure you're doing it in the right way. Because as I said, it's very easy and very cheap for a disgruntled ex-employee to file a claim for unfair dismissal. And finally, number four, make sure you have clear agreements in place between business partners and shareholders. Start with the end in mind and make sure everyone is aligned in their understanding of how the business will be run together and what the exit looks like for you all. Well, if you want to hear the full episode of my podcast interview with Ben on his show, you can visit his website at businessbrainfood.com.au and look for episode 165. You can also look up his podcast, Business Brain Food, on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And if you're interested in learning more about how you can get your business sorted from a legal perspective and ensure the right protections are set in place to avoid the legal landmines, we have a free ebook called The Seven Key Legal Risks in a Business and How to Avoid Them. You can download this on our website at aspectlegal.com com.au and there you'll also find details about how you can book in a free 15-minute consultation with one of our legal eagles here at Aspect Legal if you need help with any of the areas that we covered today. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. This has been Joanna Oki and Talking Law, a podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. 
Thanks for listening to Talking Law. Tune in next time for more smart legal tips and tricks to keep you clear of those legal landmines. If you want to get a download of today's show notes, head over to talkinglaw.com.au. Information in this podcast is general in nature, not legal advice. If you want advice for your business, visit talkinglaw.com.au.